Good morning. How are you all today? Oh, it's good to be here with you. We want to be sure to keep our brother Sheldon in our prayers. He's having a very difficult time. He's going to have a radiation treatment one day this week. The day, two days after, he's going to have a chemo treatment. And now in between, they're going to do something about his kidney stones. Got a rough, rough week coming up, and we want to be sure to keep him in mind. I'd like to read a text found in John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. This is a, an event in the life of Jesus that I think most people have at least heard uh, about it. I don't know uh, how well they understand it, but there are two statements especially that are, are well-known and uh, talked about frequently. And this text has to do with a woman who was caught in adultery in, we're told, the very act of adultery. So uh, it raises a lot of thoughts in our minds as to uh, what was going on that day. Uh, well, let's, let's proceed and let the event unfold. Early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down, and he taught them. It sounds a little strange to us. The preachers sat down. If they were in a synagogue, what would have happened would be one would stand up, and he would read from the inspired word. They would take a scroll, Isaiah, for example. And the reader would pick out a portion of Isaiah, and he would read it from the scroll as he stood. But when it was the rabbi's time to explain the text to the people, they sat down. That's how they taught. And that's what Jesus did. He's in the courtyard of the temple, probably the courtyard of the Gentiles. It was much larger. And the crowds that, you know, came, they were usually pretty large. And Jesus uh, had a lot of people who turned out in the morning for a Bible class. And he sat down and he began to teach them about God and about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Then the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes, these were people that would make copies of the Old Testament scriptures. This is all they did. They spent their entire lives doing that. Uh, every day they would copy the original autograph and they, they would make a, a separate copy. And this is how some had copies of the scriptures. Not very many people. Most of them went to the synagogues or whatever. But it took a long time to do this. And they were called scribes. They were considered to be the most knowledgeable among the Jews of the word of God because all they did was spend their time copying the scriptures. So they did have a great deal of knowledge. The Pharisees, the Pharisees were the largest denomination in Judaism at this time. Uh, the word Pharisee means separatist. Uh, back some years before, when the Jews were carted off into Babylonian captivity, they stayed in Babylon for about 70 years, and those who wanted to return to Jerusalem. Well, these people understood the mistakes of their 
parents or grandparents. They knew that uh, what they had done was gotten away from the law of God, and they had intermingled with pagans, and this ultimately led to the downfall of the nation. And these people that went back to Jerusalem, they were bound and determined that would never happen again. They were not going to make the same mistakes their parents did. They were strict in their religion. They took the word of God for what it said. And they were very godly people. This group, because they were separated from the bulk of the people, uh, they came to be known as Pharisees, separatists. They were a group that interpreted the scriptures literally in the beginning and followed it to the best of their ability. And that's how the term Pharisee uh, came into being. Well, over the years, it's 400 years passed by, over the years, uh, they got loose with the scriptures also. They had what's called the Talmud. This is where the, uh, the Jewish scholarly people, the rabbis of the nth degree, they would record uh, their interpretation of scripture. And in time, even to the Pharisees, this book, the Talmud, became more important than the scriptures themselves because this was commentary made by the elite among the Jewish people. So what my point is this, both of these groups are very powerful. They're very powerful in Judaism. They were respected for the knowledge they had, respected for their devotion to God, and the Pharisees was the largest denomination in Judaism. You got the, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Essenes. These were all smaller denominations, but the Pharisee was the big one. Well, there were some, not all of them, of course, but some of the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman to Jesus who had been caught in adultery. And when they set her in the midst, they would say to him, not before, we go on, I want to point out something. This is just a sidebar. It's got nothing to do with the lesson. Uh, last week, I, I said that the Bible teaches us in a variety of different ways. Well, right here is a place where the Bible teaches us, even though it doesn't say anything at all. For example, we know that Jesus sat down to teach, but when the scribes and the Pharisees brought this woman to him, he stood up. Now, the text doesn't say that, but it's implied because of what we'll see in verse 6 in just a moment. So keep that under your lid for a minute. The Bible doesn't say anything, but the implication is Jesus stood up. I know he did, even though the Bible doesn't say he did. Let's proceed and see. They said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. In the very act, oh, they're snarling, these holy men, they can't stand something like that. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say, Rabbi? We know what Moses said, but what do you say? Well, verse 6, this they said, testing him. They had a plan. They were going to trap him. He had nowhere to go. 
They tested him that they might have something of which they could accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Now keep in mind, in verse 2, Jesus was sitting, teaching. The scribes and the Pharisees dragged a woman into the midst of the crowd that had gathered to hear him speak. And now he stoops down. He had to have stood up. It had to happen. The scriptures doesn't say it happened. But it's implied. And sometimes we learn things about God's will. Not by what's explicitly stated. But what's implied by the divine will. Studying the Bible is very challenging. Because there, there are so many things one has to pay attention to when we do study. Instead of studying, say, a whole book at one time, it's best to study maybe a chapter or maybe just a paragraph and really understand what it teaches and then go on to the next. It's not how much we read at a given time. It's what we absorb from what we read. That's what's really important. Anyway, that has nothing to do with anything in my lesson, so I apologize. When they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them. He continued over and over and over. They continued to ask. When the Lord stooped down and started riding in the ground, that was a sign. I'm through talking to you guys. I, I don't want to, I'm not fooling with you. He knew they came to trap him and he, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. He stooped down. They weren't going to let him off the hook. They kept on. Now Moses said this woman should be stoned. What do you say? What do you say, Rabbi? Tell us. What do you say? Over and over. So finally, he raised himself back up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down. I'm through talking to you, boys. I want you to go away. He stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest man, even to the last man. And Jesus was left all alone. And the woman was standing there in the middle. I can't read this without feeling sorry for this woman. I, I know she was caught in the act of adultery, yada, yada, yada. But this wasn't right. This was not right. And when Jesus had raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman. They were gone. And he said to the woman, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus responded, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There are at least two things that people draw from this event in our Lord's life. The first one is verse 7. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. The second one comes out of verses 10 and 11. Woman, has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, well, neither do I condemn you. The two statements that's the rage, if you will, the two things people want to talk about, the questions I get, there's two things. Number one. He who is without sin, 
you cast the stone. Well, since all of us have sinned, there's none of us that are without sin. And according to what Jesus said, if none of us are without sin, then no one can cast a stone. No one can judge another. You can't say that transgenderism is wrong. You're a sinner. And a sinner can't do such a thing. Jesus said so himself. And they'll point to this verse as proof. And then again in verse 11, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And the point, if Jesus wouldn't condemn a woman caught in adultery in the very act, what right have you got to do that? You have no right. Jesus was too loving, too kind, too compassionate. He wasn't going to condemn this woman. He had nothing to do with it whatsoever. Now that's what people think it means. Now let's talk about what it actually does mean. Context. I'll drive you nuts with context because it's my key word. Context, always context. Look at what is being said. Don't just look at a statement. Look at what caused that statement to be said and learn why it was said. The exchange that took place that day, uh, he's at it again. He's in the temple, got a flock of people, He's teaching his whatever he's got, his philosophy. And they're getting tired of it. The scribes and the Pharisees were envious of Jesus. They were jealous. They were jealous because he was more popular than they were. They were supposed to be the teachers. But everybody's going to listen to Jesus. Nobody's coming to my Bible class anymore. And they don't like it. And the second reason, they were also lovers of money. This is how they made their living. They got paid some way. I don't know how it worked. But somehow they got paid for their labor. Both the scribes and the Pharisees. At least the leaders of the Pharisees. And there's a problem. I'm going to be out of a job if this keeps up. If he keeps going more and more popular... We're going to lose our position as leaders, the elites among the Jewish people. And they did not want that to happen. They didn't like our Lord, and they wanted to shut him up. And they looked for ways to do it. You can't just go out there and kill him because the people think he's a Messiah. You can't just kill him. you got to figure out another way. So they devised schemes, plans, some way to entrap him. And that's what they did on this particular day. The woman over whom so much hoopah is made, the woman is not the subject of this event. The scribes and the Pharisees are the subject. I don't know if you noticed, but you, you read them just a few moments ago in Matthew chapter 7, especially verses 3 through 5. This event was a commentary on what our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's important for us to understand it. Lucrative positions were in jeopardy, and they did not want that to happen. Enter, therefore, the adulteress. Now, this woman meant nothing. She was a, a tool, a pawn. 
She was the means to an end. The gold destroyed Jesus' credibility. This woman can help us do that. I got a plan. Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Well, that's true. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, also in Deuteronomy chapter 22, 22. That was Moses' law. Leviticus says the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death, and that would be by stoning. And that's what happened in Israel. When a man and a woman committed adultery, there was no discussion. A judge would rule, and they would be executed by stoning. It was a, a practice, if you will, at that particular time when Moses gave the law. Now, it changed over the years. You know how it works. People are devoted for a while, and then eventually, you know, they start lightening up. They start, well, you know, he's a pretty good guy, you know. She's a pretty good woman. Do we really want to kill these people with stones? I mean, really, is this what we want to do? And I don't think Moses would care if we didn't kill them. People change. The law never changes. That's like the law of the New Testament. You know the law of the New Testament means today what it meant the day it was recorded. It's never changed. But what has changed is how people look at the law. That's the only change that occurs. Well, it was true. Moses commanded death by stoning. But notice also they said Moses in the law. There was a judicial process that had to be followed. This woman was supposed to be taken to a court of law. Instead, they took, him, took her to a rabbi. That would be like one of you catching somebody trying to rob Stalo Market and you bring them to me and say, according to the law, this person should go to jail. And I would say, well, yeah, that, you know, that's true. What do you want me to do about it? And that's the position Jesus was in. Yeah, Moses did say the woman should be stoned, but that has to be done judicially. You know one thing that I think a lot of folks have misunderstood? You heard of the eye for the eye and the tooth for a tooth? The idea that many people have is that somebody knocked your tooth out, you can go back and knock their tooth out. No, that's not what that means at all. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, this is instructions for a judge. If you come to me and knock out my tooth, I call the sheriff and I say, Larry Howe, he come out here and knocked out my tooth. Well, he would arrest him, take him to jail, and he would go to court. And it's proven, my tooth's gone. Larry Howe knocked out his tooth. What are you going to do about it, judge? Well, according to the law, a tooth for a tooth. Knock his tooth out. And somebody would knock his tooth out. I wasn't supposed to knock his tooth out. The court would determine that. You remember, this was written making a nation. God was trying to turn Israel into a nation with its own government, its own laws. And he told them how to execute punishment for certain crimes. If you knock out somebody's tooth, well, then your tooth has to be knocked out or something comparable. 
If you knock out somebody's eye, well, then your eye has to be knocked out or something comparable. Maybe two teeth for one or two eyes for one. It was the judicial system, though, that was supposed to be used. And it was true what they said. The problem is Jesus wasn't a judge. It wasn't his place to determine that any more than it would be my place to determine it. I'm just a teacher, not a judge. What do you say? That was their question. What do you, and he just, he stooped down. What is it? You dumb heads, you know better than that. You know I can't judge this man. They're talking about legal punishment, okay? It was a legal punishment that was supposed to be enacted because of a violation of a law. They come to Jesus. They know they're not supposed to do that. Jesus knows they're not supposed to do that. Everybody sitting there knows it's not Jesus' place to judge this matter. I'm not fooling you dumb heads anymore. And he stooped down and started writing in the dirt. They're trying to connect Moses and Jesus. If Jesus said, Moses said stoner, so stoner, they would have went straight to the Roman authorities and they would say, Jesus is an instigator of the Jewish people. He's trying to get them to do what you Romans have prohibited. The Jews weren't allowed to execute capital punishment. If there was going to be a capital punishment, if it was going to require human life, they had to go to the Romans to get permission for it. But they weren't allowed to take the life of a person. This is why they carried Jesus before Pontius Pilate. They couldn't just crucify him. Romans would have to do that. So they tricked Pilate into doing it for him. Number two, if Jesus said, well, don't listen to Moses. Moses was wrong. Then all the people is going to be upset with him because they held Moses in a very high regard. He was the giver of the law. He was God's chosen. And if you diss Moses, you're in big time trouble. No matter what he says, he's in trouble. It was a good plan. The problem was they were dealing with the Son of God, and they were outclassed by a country mile. Jesus just stooped down. He wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. I'm finished with you guys. That's what it signified, what he did. And so when they continued asking him time and again, he finally raised himself back up and said, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped back down, and he wrote on the ground. He didn't say much, just a very little. That's all he had to say about the whole matter. He was a man of few words. But when he spoke, men words meant something, every one of them. Well, we got to think about what's taking place. We talked about the scribes and the Pharisees, who they were and what they are. They were a jealous lot. They were in fear of losing their jobs. They were in fear of losing their money. So they wanted Jesus to be silenced. Whatever it takes, this guy's got to go. And all their plotting didn't do him any good. So finally, they were at the end of their road, and they said, this guy's got to die. And that's when they got into with Pontius Pilate. They hated our Lord. They envied him. They were jealous of him. The scribes and the Pharisees knew that the Jews couldn't charge a capital crime. They knew it. 
when they took this poor woman before Jesus, they knew Jesus couldn't judge this matter. Jesus knew he couldn't judge this matter. And all the people knew. It'd be the same thing, folks. If you caught somebody robbing Stalo and you brought him to me, you know good and well, that's not, I, I can't do that. I'm not a judge. You got to go down to Gainesville to do things like that. Everybody knows and everybody knew back at this time. So why did they bring her to Jesus? Well, obviously it was a trap. And that's what it was. The scribes and the Pharisees were not behaving like godly men. Godly men wouldn't have done that. If they'd have caught the woman committing adultery in the very act, she would have gone to a court of law. But that's not what they did. They used this woman. They shamed this woman. They humiliated this woman beyond belief. Maybe she was a wife. Maybe she was a mother. If they caught her in the very act, maybe she didn't have any clothes on. They didn't care. There was no compassion. She was a means to an end. That's all she was to them. They weren't godly men. Let's look at some of the things they done. First of all, they tried to entrap Jesus. Godly men wouldn't do that. If, uh, if they don't like you, they don't try to trap you. If you do something that's contrary to divine law, a godly man would expose it, but he's not going to try to create a scenario in which he can trap you. That's, they're not involved in the entrapment business. But these men were. They brought the woman to Jesus. Where was the man? She was caught in the very act. Now, we all know it takes two to tango. And if they caught her, how come they didn't catch him? Where was the man? Did they let him slip away? Was one of these guys the man? Did they use one of their own people to set this woman up and get caught? I don't know. The text doesn't say it's possible. But one thing I do know, the man wasn't there. It wasn't about finding truth. It wasn't about trying to live within the confines of the law. The law called for both the male and the female to be stoned to death. So it had nothing to do with law. No, not really. Third, they would have taken, to her, taken her to a court of law, not a rabbi teaching a Bible class. There was nothing godly about these characters. They intentionally humiliated this woman. I can't believe they did it. In the Greek, they dragged her. She was kicking and screaming and falling down. And they were dragging her along the walkway, the path. And our people were sitting there and they had to part, they had to move because they drug this woman right into the midst of the crowd. Jesus was the middle, and everybody gathered around him. And this woman kicking and screaming, not wanting to have to do this. I understand, don't you? What a horrible, horrible thing. I can't even imagine what she felt like. 
But they didn't care. That's the thing. They didn't care. And then finally, they exploited God's law for a selfish purpose. They weren't defending God's law. They exploited it. They used it to try to entrap Jesus. And then Jesus said, He who is without sin among you, These men knew what they had done. They knew what they were doing. They knew why they do it, did it. They knew they were wrong. And they knew, for all parents' sake, they were ugly, ugly men. And when Jesus said, he was without sin among you, in essence, the implication is, look at yourself, guys. Look at what you're doing, what you've done. Is there anyone in this crowd of scribes and Pharisees who hasn't been involved in sin in this whole sordid affair? Look among yourselves. And if there's one of you in this crowd who is free of sin after all you've done today, throw your stone. Have at it. Oh, boy. He got them. They started looking at themselves, what they'd done. They might have been good guys, okay? They may have been good guys. But they lost their minds because they despised this man so much. They wanted him shutting up so much that they went to unbelievable lengths to try to accomplish their goal. And as they examine themselves and think about what they've done, what they're doing, when they see this woman standing there and they see this, this man, Jesus, who's done nothing worthy of reproach, they, they realize their guilt. The oldest, he would realize it most, most likely the wisest of the crowd. He'd been around longer. He'd seen more things. And he knew the things they had done that day were awful, awful things. He drops his rock, and he walks off. Another guy, he can't stand himself either. He drops his rock, and he walks off. One by one, until all of them are gone. <clears throat> when Jesus said, he who is without sin among you, you, you throw the first stone, he wasn't talking to everybody there that day. There were hundreds, perhaps a thousand people that were sitting there listening to him speak. But this conversation isn't between him and the crowd. He's not teaching the crowd. This conversation is between him and the scribes and the Pharisees. And he said to the scribes and the Pharisees, the one of you without sin, you throw the first stone. And there was none of them without a sin. Every one of them was guilty. They were all sharers in the same crime. He among you, you scribes and Pharisees, who is without sin, you throw the stone. They were gone. When Jesus raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman. And then he said to the woman, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Has no one sentenced you to death? 
Keep in mind, this is a judicial setting, at least in the minds of the scribes and Pharisees. Has none of your accusers sentenced you to death? And then she responded, no one, Lord. They're gone. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Neither will I sentence you to stoning. Well, why would he do that? I would say it's because he wasn't a judge. He didn't have the authority to. He couldn't do that. They had to go to a court of law. I understand he's the son of God, but as the son of God, he lived within the confines of the law of Moses. He lived by the law. The law required a judicial process. They were not following a judicial process. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. I don't have a right to condemn you. It's not my place to condemn you. This is supposed to be done by the court system. That's what he means when he says, neither do I condemn you. He's not saying, I don't find what you did sin. He's saying, I'm not going to judge you to death because that's not my place. It's a matter for the courts to make such a judgment. Go and sin no more. She's got to stop sinning. He admits she had sinned. Yes, she was an adulteress. And adultery is a sin. He said, go on your way. Go back to your home. Go back to your family. But stop sinning. Stop committing adultery. That was important because the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. He's not saying she didn't sin. He's acknowledging the fact that she did. But this is misinterpreted so many times. And it doesn't need to be. I mentioned a moment ago that Matthew 7 was an event of which this would be a commentary. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? I got a piece of sawdust in my eye. Why do you look into your brother's eye who's got a speck? And do not consider the plank that's extended from your eye. You know, you, you, you're, you're calling Titus the sinner, John, and look at you. Titus, uh, I don't know what he would ever do. I can't think of it. Uh, let's say he stole something. He stole a, a brush. Titus stole a brush. You know, there, Titus, man, you're a bad guy. You steal a brush. You're a bad guy. Okay? Titus has got a speck in his eye. He committed whatever may not have even been fraudulent, but I make a big issue out of it. And at the same time, I'm guilty of murder. How silly does that look? Wouldn't that be silly? I'd be, I'd be a foolish, foolish, foolish looking man. I'm accusing him for stealing a brush, and here I am, a murderer. Makes no sense at all. And this is what the Lord's asking. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye without considering the plank that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hey, brother, let me remove the speck from your eye. And look, a plank is extended for your own eye. How can you do that, you foolish, foolish, foolish man? Hypocrites, first, get the plank out of your own eye. And once that's removed and you're healed, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, that's what John chapter 8 was all about. The scribes and the Pharisees had a plank sticking out of their eye. And they was trying to get the speck out of a woman's eye. 
That's the comparison he makes between her adultery and the crimes they committed that day. It's not about the woman. It's about the scribes and the Pharisees. It's about walking around with a plank in your eye, trying to straighten up everybody else's life. It's just silly looking. Just silly looking. I hope you understand what the meaning of those statements are now, because I'm done. I've run out of words. I've run out of saliva. My tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth, and it's time for me to hush. I hope, uh, I always hope with all my heart that you, if you're not a Christian, can believe in Christ as the Son of God, that you have a, a desire in your heart to stop sinning, willing to do whatsoever and be immersed in water for forgiveness of sins as Christians, as Christians. It's, it's a wonderful thing to get started off in our Christian life in a good way. But what's most important to us now is to finish our race as a Christian in a good way. And that, you know, that, that can be really hard. As time goes on, day after day after day, dealing with all the obstacles that we see, being confronted by all the temptations that come our way, and God being so far away from us in heaven, in a whole lifetime before us, before we can join him. Sometimes we step out of the way to taste life. And we may not realize what we've done. But we've done a very terrible thing. And if we don't get back into the straight and narrow soon, there may come a time when we can't ever get back into it. And that would be horrible. I found nothing better in my own life than Jesus Christ. He is my hero. He is my everything. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. I love him to the moon and back. This is what's become of me since I became a Christian. And I hope you do as well. I'm being as honest as I possibly can be.